At the time of this recording, the world is in the midst of a viral pandemic. Many people are afraid. Many people are in isolation, voluntary or otherwise. Some are sick or will become sick. And indeed, some are dying. In this special series of the Guru Viking podcast, I ask my guests how to work with fear, anxiety and panic. How to work with isolation. How to work with sickness and death and how to help others who are also having those experiences. Neither I nor my guests are medical professionals, and this podcast is not medical advice. Fear, sickness and death are perennial human experiences, and it's my hope that these episodes will be of use not only to those who are being affected now by this situation, but also of use to others beyond it. So, Michaela, thank you very much for joining me on this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. Hello. At the moment, a lot of people are frightened, uh, feeling anxiety, or maybe even panic. What would you say to someone who came to you and said, Michaela, I'm frightened, I'm struggling with anxiety, or indeed I'm panicking? Well, I think the first thing to say about that is that there's nothing wrong with being frightened or panicked or having fear. There is a good evolutionary reason to have fear or panic or being frightened. That's what's kept us safe for the entire evolution of humanity. So I don't think it's a, uh, you know, it's a matter of trying to avoid that or just, um, I see all these posts at the moment of people going, well, just raise your vibration or things like that. Um, I don't think that's the way to go. I think um, acknowledging fear and, um, you know, panic in the face of totally unprecedented circumstances is totally appropriate. However, um, since this is not going to go away anytime soon, it's good to know a few things about how to manage stress and fear and anxiety and what they do in the body. The thing to know is that fight or flight is an absolutely essential survival mechanism. And it's really good when there's something acute going on. So for instance, in the olden days there, it's pretty clear cut. You're sitting in your cave, you just had a mammoth leg and suddenly you hear rustling outside the cave door, right? Or the cave opening. And your entire body will kind of go into um, alertness. And then when some big saber-toothed tiger, cat, or something else shows up at your cave doorstep, your entire body goes into fight or flight. And what that looks like, physiologically speaking, is going to get very fast breaths, very fast heartbeat. You have a metallic taste of the tongue that comes from the dumping of the adrenaline. You get tunnel vision, the hair might stand up. Um, you get like very, very alert. Uh, you have a little bit of tingling and numbness in the hands and feet. And all of that's there so that a lot, a lot of very oxygenated blood gets pumped into your body so you can either fight as hard as you can or run as fast as you can. So that's the basic survival instinct that all human beings have built in in the body. Important thing to know about that is that um, that survival instinct is useful when you can do something with it, but not useful when that happens in uh, coronavirus news. It's the exact same feeling. It's just not a threat that's right in front of you, but the body responds exactly like it does when there is an imminent physical threat. And there might be an imminent physical threat later, but by then your adrenals are so worn out and you're so exhausted from that 
whole cycle that you're no longer capable of making good decisions. So it's not that the fear is bad or the panic is bad. It's that it's not appropriate to stay in fear and panic. You have to step the nervous system down. Um, you know, the stress is not the bad thing. It's the not recovering from the stress. And you have to also know when to expose yourself to it and when not. So you're not producing chronic fight or flight. Or the other thing that I haven't even talked about yet is freeze, where you go kind of in a shock freeze state and you kind of power down and you stay in this kind of numb, semi-alert state um, that also makes it that you can make proper decisions. So this fight or flight uh, response that's so useful in an acute situation, such as facing a saber-toothed tiger, uh, is not so useful on an ongoing uh, basis with sort of environmental threat. How is it then that we can step down the nervous system from a activated fight or flight sort of state that's so good for those acute situations? How can we step down um, from that? Because the problem with fight or flight, it seems, is that one can't quite think straight. One doesn't have access to all one's faculties. So what can be done? Is just saying to yourself, calm down, calm down. Is that, is that enough? No, that's not enough. If that would be enough, no, no one would ever be panicked or have a panic attack. So the important thing to know, of course, is that um, fight or flight, like you said so rightly, um, is a state in which reason is overridden for the sake of fighting or running, right? And you can't have the lag of reason when you really have to fight or run. So for something like this pandemic, we do need reason and we need long-term strategy and you know a calm mind and fight or flight can't do that. So one of the ways that I sometimes explain the mechanism of fight or flight is that um, you can imagine that you kind of, you have a cup and that cup is the receptacle for your stress um, triggers, so to speak, or your stress drops. So every time uh, there is a threat, real or perceived, read online or uh, of an ancient cat at the doorstep, right? It's a drop in the cup. Your thoughts, negative thoughts, panicked thoughts are a drop in the cup. And so when you wake up, if you had solid, really good sleep, and you're not chronically stressed, you might have an empty cup. And then when you start scrolling through your coronavirus feed while you're still in bed, and then go on Facebook to all your freaked out friends, and then you speak with your elderly parents, and then you worry about your job and so on and so on, which is what we all are doing at the moment, it's drops in the cup. Once you get to about 50%, your body will create stress responses, faster pulse, faster breathing, uh, tension in the body. Once you go to 75, you're in panic mode. And when it overflows, you have what is now deemed a panic attack, which is a full fight or flight moment. So um, there's two strategies, not only with this particular situation, but in general. And one of the strategies is to empty the cup. The other one is to not fill the cup as much, both of which are useful in this particular moment. So not filling the cup too much would be to not constantly scroll and read and look at the death rates and uh, you know get riled up by other people. 
it's enough probably to check once or twice a day to make sure you're not missing something or subscribe to a few reliable sources and don't go to the worst stuff, right? So you, and you don't speak about it all the time and all of those things, that's pretty apparent. The other one is that emptying the cup is um, equally if not more important right now because it's what keeps you um, somewhat in an equilibrium and, and allows you to be rational. And so the things that empty the cup are proper sleep, uh, proper nutrition, proper hydration, exercise, particularly movement that is um, allowing the body to access its own kind of self-cleansing trauma release process, like for instance, nonlinear movement or just shaking out the body or, or you know, even gentle uh, hikes or walks. So interestingly enough, and this is what's going to come in handy for people stuck at home, are things like hobbies. And hobbies, I mean, things that are like arts and crafts, puzzles, games, um, projects, you know, um, coloring, music, uh, you know, uh, movement, all those things that um, give you both a kind of a sense of creativity and enjoyment and beauty and music particularly is a wonderful one, um, but that also kind of empties the cup. So that's um, a good strategy to not get stuck. Now, I just want to say one thing about freeze, because some people tend to freeze versus fight, which is a certain kind of an aggression or flight where you just want to curl up in bed and you know put the covers over and make it all go away. There's also freeze where you actually feel fine. And the reason you feel fine is because you're numb to what's actually happening. And you can always tell um, from the outside of somebody's in freeze because they're a little bit delayed and they're blinking a little bit too little or they're a little bit too still or they're so calm in a situation that actually isn't that calm. And so when that happens, if you see this in someone else, the best thing to do is make sure that they move, um, you know, physical contact if you are not social distancing, meaning if you're at home with somebody and this is your intimate partner, you can hug them, you can move with them, you can hold them. Um, that's in general, I think, a very good idea between people who are not infecting each other with things is to have a certain amount of physical contact and make sure that the body is well taken care of. Hmm. Yeah, so something like regular movement or hobbies is going to help maintain uh, or it, it will, um, is going to help drain that cup um, and help one's resilience against the stresses that are all around. And even if one doesn't feel like one's in a fight or flight response, it will improve one's uh, resilience to the stress factors in the environment and in the situation. And it, one may discover uh, when one starts to move that what one thought was calmness ends up being a sort, certain sort of frozenness. Um, that's very interesting. Could you talk a little bit about the nonlinear movement method and perhaps give people a sense of how they might apply that in a situation like this? Yeah, so nonlinear movement is something that I've created and that you have supported, of course, right? We teach it together and um, it's, you know, it's been really developed over the last few years as a specific modality that allows uh, people to work through um, you know, undefined or defined trauma 
uh, bring the body into flow, bring the mind into flow, um, opens the body to uh, more sensitivity. And with that, of course, greater pleasure, but also greater intuition. And it's just an all around good tool um, of somatic engagement with the body. And it's super easy to do. So nonlinear movement is something that I've developed over the last 30 something years. And it started with my personal practice when I was uh, both uh, training in psychology and also working with my teacher um, in, in the realms of kind of the inner yogas and embodiment. And um, it refined itself when I did clinical work in a rehab for quite a few years. And it was quite a um, heavy duty dual diagnosis rehab where there was a lot of physical and sexual trauma. And, and um, I developed uh, a big part of it in order to get people out of free states and allow them to uh, process things through the body that couldn't be processed through the mind. And from there, um, you and I, of course, have developed a lot more modalities uh, so that it can be used uh, to create flow, uh, to support sensitization, intuition, um, pleasure. You know, there's all kinds of ways that it can be used. But the main way and the way that we want to talk about it here when we talk about what to do when one is panicked and freaked out is the very simple technique of moving what you're feeling, which is uh, a tracking of internal states through external motions. And I think it would be nice to include this little moving what you're feeling guided clip that um, we have so people can actually do it as a means of de-stressing. It's one of the quickest ways to empty the cup and also to become aware of underlying things that might not be apparent. And if there's a moment of freeze or if there is acute overwhelm, the, it will actually allow the body to regulate itself. Great. Yes, we'll include uh, a link to that download in the show notes. So that's one way to uh, look after oneself and to regulate one's own nervous system. But you know, very, people out there, I think, are having friends loved ones, perhaps neighbors who are also frightened, maybe they're sick, uh, maybe they're dying. Uh, what advice do you have or guidance do you have for someone who, who wants to help? Well, I think the impulse to help is a really good impulse, right? And um, I think by all means, if the impulse to help, help comes up, um, that should be followed. But there's a few things to consider. The one thing to consider is that some of us, not all of us, but some of us cope by negating our own feelings and also sometimes need in order to help someone else because it kind of has a soothing, numbing effect on the system. And that at times is really useful, like when you have to forego your own needs, let's say for the, the well-being of your child or so, right? It's good to be somewhat self-sacrificing when it comes to your children and stuff like that in extreme situations. But when it becomes an ongoing coping where you're essentially martyring yourself for the good of others while not taking care of yourself, that's not very useful. So the question is always, is the need or willingness to help um, aligned with your own uh, resourcefulness or, or well-being? Meaning, 
do you have enough that you can give of yourself to others, right? And so that would mean, are you well enough? Um, are you balanced enough? Are you taking care of yourself, your health, your family enough so that you can then help others effectively? It's that old put, uh, you know, your own mask on the plane on first before you help your neighbor uh, kind of a situation. That said, I think I was thinking about this a lot today in the context of my own parents who are home um, in lockdown in Austria, right? Um, I think that the um, the acts of service and the willingness to look after someone else and offer something else and um, give of yourself and your resources and your gifts is um, is very, I don't know what the word would be. It, it has a good effect on everyone. It has a good effect on us because it gives you um, actual purpose and it also utilizes who you are and the best of you and that's always a very good thing and of course it helps the person that you are dealing with and I find often that in uh, moments of really intense panic or when I get a little bit too contracted into my own you know me 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 oh my god what's gonna happen it's really useful to um leave that behind for a moment and reach out. And even if it's just texting the neighbor and asking if they're all right or actively doing something that can be done, I think that's really, really important um, to consider uh, something outside of oneself. And then that way you don't find yourself uh, hoarding toilet paper and selling it for 25 bucks on eBay or some bizarre thing. <laughs> that happens when people get too worried about their own well-being when one feels awfully self-contracted and and hopeless in a sense uh, to actually look around and, and in your environment and see is there something i can usually do even something small even sending a text that that can actually even shift your state and contribute to the general uplifting of of the community yeah for sure mm -hmm. i think that's really really important so something that I think a lot of people are facing either the reality of or the possibility of is sickness and death. And I know you've had, in terms of your own life, a fairly interesting relationship to death and some interesting experiences around the subject of death. Uh, from those experiences, is there any insight or reflection that you can offer on the topic? <laughs> yes, there's lots, but for the you know for the sake of this interview i would say that um death and sickness is really really tough for most people um civilians and teachers alike because it confronts us with the uncontrollable right um i got a text from somebody a couple of days ago where she said please don't die and it's like well i don't have any control over that <laughs> right so people's relationship with death and everything that comes with it is pretty um, squeamish, of course, because also we don't live in a society where death is being looked at. And um, I, for myself, had uh, to kind of confront that for a variety of reasons, one of which is I lost um, three people very dear to me in a fairly short amount of time. Um, and uh, I had to be really with their death in various ways very very strongly and it really freaked me out and so um i had to 
go there and feel what that's like. And it was an interesting process because when I actually went there fully, the, and the experience of it was an experience of uh, surrender. Um, you know, that the kind of knowing that any moment it could happen also had an incredible opening. And, and also this odd feeling in the body of free fall or, um, you know, not, not having any ground, but within that a total ecstasy. And that's something that later on when my uh, previous teaching partner died about seven years ago, um, the thing that was most striking was that no one could deal with his actual death. It was all their projections. It was all what they thought. And some people swept it under the rug. Some people did the, he's in a better place. He's with the angels. Um, you know, he must have been called forth because he's so good. Other people went, oh, he's now going to be enlightened. Some people had like horrible projections on how long it took him to die. I mean, none of it was about him. Everything was about people around him. And so if there's something to be said about supporting people who are sick or dying, um, it's as much as you can keep your own stuff out of it. I know that's not easy, but um, it's really, really important to understand that their process can't be um, hampered or, or um, messed up by your process, right? As much as, as, as people think they're helping when they do certain things like, oh, you can't die, it's gonna be okay. You know, um, if it's not okay, it's much better to be with somebody with what is. And um, if you can't do that, it is better not to be around. Because uh, the worst thing you can do to somebody who's very sick or in fact dying is that they have to take care of you instead of being with their own process. And that happens a lot. And my last question is that many people are finding themselves limiting their social contact or indeed going into isolation, whether that's voluntary or otherwise. What uh, advice do you have for somebody who finds themselves in a period of extended seclusion? Well, it depends on who you are, of course, you know, meaning some people really, really enjoy that. And for some people, it's the worst thing ever. And so I think there's different advice for different people. If you are someone who really enjoys seclusion, I would say make the best of it, right? Meaning um, use the time creatively, use the time to do extra practice, whatever your practice is, um, or read some books or do some hobbies or um, focus on the things that usually can't be done. Um, you know, most people have a long list of things that they would do if they actually suddenly were locked up somewhere for a couple of months with nowhere to go, right? It's kind of almost a fantasy for some people. For other people, um, not being social and not being constantly connected is very, very distressing. And so if you're that kind of a person, the advice would be to prioritize connection with humans over mindlessly scrolling uh, through your social media day and night. 
um, meaning reaching out to a friend and talking on the phone. And nowadays, of course, we have Skype, we have FaceTime, we have Zoom. So you can actually see someone. No, you can touch them. Um, and you might not want to touch them anyway, but uh, you can connect and you can have meaningful conversations and meaningful connection other ways because there is time. A lot of people have suddenly a lot more time than they've had. And so um, the kind of conversations that can only be had usually when you, you know, make special time in a special place with a special person could actually be done. And uh, reaching out is, I think, a very important thing. And this is particularly true if you have relatives or friends who are older, who live alone, who are isolated and not used to that, um, doing a daily outreach and you know sending texts. But mostly, I think, face-to-face -face call time um, can be really good. And um, if you look at it as an opportunity to deepen personal connection, versus escaping in you know the horrible world of um facebook feeds and you know uh fear-mongering um then it can be used for something you know? and then of course if you tend to have a creative backlog now is a good time so one of the things that i think can happen when people find themselves in periods of extended seclusion once again whether it's voluntary or otherwise is the day can begin to in a certain sense, lose some of its tone. It can become quite flat. Sometimes the emotions can become quite depressive in nature. It's difficult to get up and get going. One finds oneself up into the wee hours of the, of the night, uh, difficult to sleep, things like that. And there's just sort of this lost sense, sort of drowning sense. Do you have any thoughts uh, for how to prevent that sort of thing from taking hold, or if one finds it's taken hold, to remedy it? Well, so having decided myself that I was going to um, isolate uh, for, uh, you know, a number of reasons, one of which I think it's the right thing to do. And also um, I am for once home and not having to travel. The first thing I did is I made a plan for the entire uh, next two weeks. And um, what I did was um, I gave myself a few days of just rest and um, you know, just allowed myself to kind of slow down, which doesn't happen that often, and um, um, you know, get to the point where I was actively starting to get bored. Um, I personally think that's always a really good idea if you can kind of get to the place where you don't do the you know the constant computer input and everything till you reach a moment of almost boredom, and then start. Uh, putting the things in that you want to do. So I made an entire list of the things that I want to do each day. And they still include, of course, work. We're still working, right? And, um, it, and But I have it all written out, all the things I'd like to do, the practices, the movement, the being out with the animals, going into nature, hobbies, stress relief, meditation, uh, creative projects. So I, and so I have lists and within that, then I make sure that I pick. And one of the things that I find very useful, not only in a situation like right now, is I kind of batch, meaning I do one thing for a while and then I do another thing for a while and then another thing. Um, and that's what I'm doing at the moment, right? It's like I'm doing a certain amount of work, then I'll have lunch, but while I'm 
having lunch, I'm not working. Then I'll go out and walk with the animals and dogs and things like that. Then I go back to work. So I do like these little um, bits and pieces of time, concentrated time spent. Um, and then by the end of the day, um, I do things that kind of step down the system or that creatively um, are enjoyable. So I think as far as um, how do you do it if you're not necessarily a self-starter, I think you should have each day have a few things that you really, really enjoy that feel like a treat, right? And I also don't think there's anything wrong if you can do it timing-wise to read an entire book or two or even, you know, binge watch an entire series of Vikings or something like that. If that's something that then allows the body and the mind and the soul to kind of um, unwind and open and relax. And finally, do you have any closing comments uh, on the topic before we wrap up this particular episode of the Guru Viking podcast? I've been thinking a lot about, you know, that particular situation and uh, the closing comments here are, it could get way worse. And that's a horrible thing to say as a closing comment. But what I mean by that is um, this is an odd moment in time. And I think uh, enjoying every moment, every second of that time, however strange it is, I think is really, really important because it can definitely get worse. It could also get a lot better, but we don't know that. But when we um, look at having this time, there is really no time to waste, right? And so within that, I think it's really important to not get too stuck in the panic and in, in the, you know, future horrors and be with whatever is happening, uh, knowing that it doesn't necessarily have to get better, uh, but also knowing that it could. And so this particular moment is really all there is. And it's always been like that. But I think it's very, very apparent now. Michaela Bohm, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. How good is she? And so photogenic. Yes, he's so good. <laughs> <laughs>